Film podcast. This is Brian, and Dan's here with me. Hey, Brian. How's it going, Dan? Uh, I'm doing pretty good, you know. But I heard you've had an up and down week. Yes, this is another one where it's been a while since the last time we recorded. It's like stretching the very extremes of what constitutes a week. Uh, but we're just keeping it going. Part of the reason for the delay is. I got my turn to have COVID. It happened. It finally happened. We should have chosen another actor to binge watch their entire filmography. Like when I got COVID, I watched all of Tom Hanks's 54 films. Well, I can't claim to have done that, but I did watch four movies for this episode. And then I threw in the new it part one and two. So that added like another five hours. So wow. I have been watching some stuff. I was laid up for a while, actually managed to uh, do some work from home, which was not my usual state of affairs, but I've been working on some curricula stuff, writing down notes related to virtual reality projects that people are going to do at the virtual reality summer camp program. So it's been all right. Uh, I was only really feeling it the first day uh, when I was having chills and stuff. There was a scene in the movie that we're going to be talking about that it reminded me of, but uh, mostly it's just been coughing. So you might hear some of that. I, I don't know. I'm still got lingering aspects. I, I still uh, took a test yesterday and it's still showing just that faintest second line. So I don't know when it actually stops. They say, uh, according to the Virginia and Maryland government, it's like after you test positive, wait five days in isolation and then if your symptoms have gone down or gone away then you can go back to work but it, it doesn't ever say when do you actually test negative again huh. it's just like it's like once you get that positive wait five days and then whatever but uh technically it's was still showing a second line so interesting well we'll we'll see but i'm feeling better i'm glad you're feeling better and yeah I I suspect I got hit a little bit harder than you did, it, it sounds like, because I was down for the count for at least two days. Uh, but, yeah, man, it's pretty brutal. It's no joke. And we're both fairly young, healthy people, so, you know. And vaccinated, for what it's worth. And vaccinated, yeah. My two daughters just got vaccinated because they just opened the vaccine to under age five, like, last week, so... Now, every single person in my house has had the shot at least once. So look out for yourselves out there in Radio Land. But, as we always do, we've brought a movie to discuss. And this time around, it was my selection. I picked Walk Hard, the musical biopic parody from 2007, directed by Jake Kasdan. I think this was your first time that you've sat down to watch this one, right, Dan? Yeah, this is one... You've always been pushing me to watch, and you've made multiple references to, and I knew that I had to see it at some point, and last week I forced you to watch a movie that was kind of the mirror of that, where I've been trying to get you to watch it, and that was Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and so here we have the opposite. You got me to watch something that, that you've long suspected I would like, and so here we are. And that's not the only parallel, I would say, between Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Walk Hard. 
Yeah, I was surprised. I, I noticed some connections. One, of course, is that Judd Apatow was involved with this film. Yeah, I think he was even more involved in Walk Hard than in uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, that's correct. He was one of the writers of this film, whereas on that one, I think he had a producer credit or something. But this definitely has some of the usual pack of Apatow actors. What do they call that group? Is that the frat pack or is the frat pack somebody else? I guess that's Sandler and uh, Kevin James and his friends. I don't know if this crew has a name, but it's... Well, you see some familiar faces for sure. Yeah, I think some of the actors here are frat pack members, but I think... I don't know if there's a, like, name of the the Team Apatow, the Seth Rogans and Bill Haders and all them. But I think, for example, like, Jack Black is sometimes called a frat pack member. Oh, true. And he does pop up here at yeah. one point. A lot of people pop up. I guess we'll get to yeah, that. This is... Uh, ensemble cast but the uh main star is john c riley this is a john c riley vehicle not too many of those no and he's playing dewey cox who is a musical sensation he's a big figure in american music history and he's kind of a pastiche an amalgamation of several different real-world music figures. Uh, because this is a parody. I don't know if we've covered anything yet that was specifically a parody of another movie or movies. Yeah, not to my knowledge. Definitely some that that have elements of parody and pastiche to them that we've talked about. But this is the first like straight-ahead parody that I can think of. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize I haven't actually seen all that many pure parody films yeah like a spoof right it had me thinking back to some that i've seen like Spaceballs or blazing saddles young frankenstein all the mel brooks's but spoof is maybe not the most acclaimed label you can pin on yourself you gotta think of the recent films like disaster movie and epic movie and uh, what are some others Vampires suck. What was the one? Meet the Spartans. Not the most critically acclaimed bunch, necessarily. They're, they're just kind of parasites. It's like reference whatever made a bunch of money at the box office, and you can milk out a little bit more for yourself. Yeah, throw some penis jokes in there. Right. But I think there's a little more to this one, as we'll discuss. I think I first saw... Walk Hard, when I was in college, it would have been around about 2010, my roommate showed it to me, and I think it might have been the first movie I ever saw with John C. Riley in it. I don't know that I'd seen him before then. Interesting. I'd have to look through his filmography and think about what the first one I saw was. I don't know. Maybe it was um, Talladega Nights. That one got a lot of play in, high school, in college. Okay. I still haven't seen that one. I need to. But then in 2012, Wreck-It Ralph came out, and I thought, oh, that's the walk-hard guy. <laughs> I wonder how many people made that leap. They, they saw Wreck-It Ralph, and they said, the walk-hard guy. That's how they thought of John C. Riley. I don't know. And uh, when would it have been? I think also 2012, 
I went and stayed with my aunt and uncle in San Francisco, yeah, in summer 2012, and went to a bluegrass music festival that my cousin's band was playing at, and John C. Riley had a music combo there at the music festival. Whoa! So I, I, yeah, I saw him perform there in concert. You saw him live. That's cool. He didn't do any of the Walk Hard songs. Oh, man. So you said you watched four movies for this podcast episode. Can you share what those four movies were? Indeed. So we said this is a spoof, and the movies it most clearly draws on are Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash biopic from 2005, which has Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash, but also Ray, the Ray Charles biopic from 2004 that had Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles. And previous to this week, I knew that Walk the Line was involved. I mean, it's it's in the title. They're both walking. And that Dewey Cox is like most closely a parallel to Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I watched Ray too, because there might be even more of that movie in this one in just like little ways subtle ways i definitely felt a connection there oh yeah for sure i i also watched both of those movies this past week um i had seen walk the line before but i had never seen ray before so yeah it was interesting i i wanted to re-watch those before i watched walk hard so that i could be fresh on all my references and touch points and it is like a thorough beat by beat takedown of those types of films I can see why people say that this movie basically ruined an entire genre for them. <laughs> yep, so we're going to be talking about those, Ray and Walk the Line. And then the fourth film is Walk Hard Again, only it's the extended version. What is called on the Blu-ray, the unbearably long self-indulgent director's cut. So that runs about two hours even compared to the one hour and 36 minute theatrical cut. And that in itself is a walk the line reference because walk the line had a director's cut that was released when the DVD came out. I mean, I know it's not the only movie to have done it, but it, it felt like it was homaging that by making fun of how indulgent those director's cuts are. That's interesting. I didn't know that. So did you get a chance to watch this one as well? Uh, so I had been planning to watch the extended cut, but I got distracted with other stuff when we put off our recording and I never got around to circling back to it, although I did scrub through some of the deleted scenes on YouTube. Um, so I have a little bit of a flavor of it. But what, what I did watch was the theatrical cut twice, the second time with the commentary. And I learned a lot from that commentary. It was a Ooh. very good commentary. So it was recorded right after post-production completed before the movie debuted. And so there was some bittersweet to it because they were like hopeful that it was going to be a box office success. But I believe it ended up absolutely tanking at the box office. Yeah, I think it cost $35 million and earned like $20 million. And one thing they said is that if this movie took off, one idea that they were cooking was to basically have John C. Riley do a tour as Dewey Cox and occasionally pop up and stuff, essentially performing with his band as if he were a real musician. And it makes me very sad that 
this movie didn't get enough traction in the time when they could have pulled that off. I mean, I suppose they they still could someday. You know, most of these people are still alive. But um, I thought that was a pretty funny idea. I wish it had happened. They wrote a lot of music for this movie. Yeah. And a lot of them trained. That was another thing I learned in the commentaries. Uh, almost everyone who is in a band in this film spent time getting formal training in whatever it is that they are performing in. And in some cases they trained and then they like performed it, but you never actually hear either in the soundtrack or on the film itself, them performing. So they got mad about it because I think it wasn't Tim Meadows. It was one of the other people in the band was saying, why did he waste, you know, six weeks of his life learning to play whatever it was bass or something like that. When he was heard by literally zero people who ever watched the movie or listened to the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) wow okay well i'm glad that we're bringing a little bit of different stuff to the table i have not heard the commentary track i think the only movie i've ever listened to the commentary track on is shrek (laughs) and that's because that was my very first dvd so i did like every possible thing that you could do on that disc oh that's cool um it's it's a good film i i stand by shrek I like Shrek more than, well, yeah, no, I, I'm pretty fond of Shrek too. So the reason that I brought this up, because I was going to talk about uh, Walk Hard, Dewey Cox being a a live show, because you mentioned that he didn't, when you saw him live, you didn't see, you didn't, he didn't do any Walk Hard songs, which was disappointing. Right. But I, I've got like a signed John C. Riley record. Uh, I think my cousin got me that. Yeah, I, it, he didn't sign it at the show that I was at, but I, I have that. Mm. The other uh, anecdote I wanted to bring in at this point is that we mentioned Judd, Judd Apatow was the writer this time. But according to the commentary, he was even more than the writer. So basically, Jake Kasdan, the director, had this idea and he, he called up Apatow, who he's close with, and said, hey, wouldn't it be kind of cool if we did like a parody of all these really self-indulgent, over-serious musical biopics that have been coming out. And Judd Apatow said, huh, let me think about it. And then like three days later, got a call back from Apatow saying, all right, I've uh, booked us time to workshop the script and we're going to do this and that. And so like Apatow was the driver that actually like turned the idea into the action. That's awesome. I feel like that's the kind of thing you got to do when you got Judd Apatow as a friend. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Just bounce ideas off him and and hope he gives you the go-ahead and, and becomes that driving force. Right. As we said, this is a biopic. We've covered a few of those. Usually, my selections. Early on, I assigned The Founder, which was a biopic of Ray Kroc of McDonald's fame. We watched The Greatest Showman about P.T. Barnum. And uh, also The Elephant Man with John Hurt. So this is one that plays with the form some, but obviously very much a biopic. And then uh, we went ahead and tossed onto the heap, Walk the Line, and Ray. So this is a well-trod genre for us now. And coincidentally, the Elvis biopic comes out the day that we're recording this right now. Maybe it was yesterday or something. But the new... Baz Luhrmann, or I don't know how you say his name, the guy who did Moulin Rouge and the Romeo plus Juliet, Romeo and Juliet take, he did a like two hour and 45 minute Elvis biopic that that's debuting. And who is in that one, Dan? Tom Hanks. 
So I trust you're going to be seeing it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to be, I got to find the time, but I'm definitely going to see it. Some guy like Austin Butler or something actually plays Elvis and Tom Hanks in a fat suit. I'm assuming it's a fat suit and he didn't put on like 60 pounds for this role as his manager with like this thick Southern accent. And it, it looks like very silly, overdramatic in a way that maybe I'll enjoy or maybe I'll just find totally repulsive. So I feel like it's going to be one way or the other. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to take the stage and discuss the plot of Walk Hard from 2007? Let's do it. Okay. Now, this movie has got John C. Riley as Dewey Cox, the Johnny Cash analog. And he starts out the film about to walk out through the curtain for this big performance that he's about to do. Uh, but he's hesitant. He's standing back in the wings and the stagehand is like, come on, you got to go on. You, one one more minute, you got to be out there. And his band members say, don't rush him. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. <laughs> We're just going to kind of be sprinkling in moments that were like directly cribbed from one of the films, but this is exactly how walk the line starts out right it's a it's a big performance and then it flashes back to everything well i mean even even more specific than that though it's got the stagehand being like mr cash you gotta come out here and joaquin phoenix is standing there looking pensively at a table saw <laughs> that's right yeah but yeah he's got to think about his entire life so we get this flashback to dewey cox as a kid uh, young child actors running around on this farm he grew up on and it's him and a brother and the brother is like a multi-talented prodigy he's like a really good piano player and can do various things and his parents are very proud uh, but they're running around playing on this farm and talking about how they've got these long lives ahead of them <laughs> and the brother especially has all these grand ambitions, all these things that he's going to do while they're just playing outrageously dangerous games like rattlesnake toss. <laughs> they're like playing tractor chicken and, and stuff. <laughs> and then they decide to have a machete fight. Who hasn't been there? I know. It's just part of growing up. <laughs> so they're swinging these machetes at each other. And young Dewey inadvertently cleaves his brother in two. It's very cartoonish. <laughs> the top half of his body just slides off and falls onto the floor. And, like, his legs are still standing there in place. <laughs> the bottom half of him is, is sitting there saying, I'm halved! <laughs> it's a real, what is the line of something like, it's a real bad case of cut in half or something like that. <laughs> this is a particularly bad case of being cut in half. I was not able to attach the top half to the bottom half. <laughs> Speak English, Doc! Uh, which, if it's not apparent already, it's going to become apparent that I've pretty much committed this script to memory. There's a lot of good lines that I find very quotable. But the the brother does not make it. He's he's done for now that he's halved. And so now Dewey has got to be double great for the two of them. One thing I learned in the commentary was uh, 
they really workshopped this idea of how the younger brother was going to die. And one draft of the script that they had, uh, they obviously ended up not going with this is they, they liked the idea of having the brother hang around and like occasionally have conversations with Dewey Cox. And so one idea they had was don't have him die, but have him undergo some really crippling injury that meant that he couldn't pursue his musical career. And the idea was that he was going to fall off the roof and break both of his shoulders. So he would spend the rest of the movie, the, the brother would, walking around with his arms dangling, like uh, fleshy on the side, so he couldn't play the piano anymore. And then he was going to like berate Dewey the rest of the movie. <laughs> I think that has potential too. But when I watched this the first time, this part is just so broad and cartoonish i had to wonder where the hell did they come up with the idea that he gets cut in half with a machete but this happened to johnny cash's brother only it wasn't a machete it was a table saw he got pulled through a table saw and cut in half this was not something that i knew prior to researching this film and then reading the wikipedia article about walk the line uh, but then little did I know, Ray Charles's brother also died back in the 40s, traumatically and influentially. It's just like a hallmark of the music biopic early 2000s, I guess. Yeah. Because in that case, the little brother falls into a wash basin and drowns. And it's like, I don't know. I think this kid could have gotten out of this tub. Like, his arms are out of the tub, his legs are out of the tub. It's like, just stand up. Just don't yeah. be in the tub anymore. <laughs> yeah. You're going to drown if you stay in the tub, so get out of the tub. It is kind of stupid. We texted about this a little, and kids are really bad at not drowning. So, like, I bought that this was plausible. It's like a really big thing that doctors teach new parents is you absolutely cannot leave your kid near... Any standing water an inch or higher, including the bath, including the pool, including deep puddles outside, because kids are very bad at not drowning. They don't know what to do to make themselves not drown. So it, it does kind of hold. But from a movie perspective, it just looks real stupid in Ray, because he's just like you said, he's essentially just lying down in a little bowl of water. It's like, dude, what are you doing? And what's more is Ray is looking at him. He's standing right there watching it happen. And then the mom comes out and is like, why didn't you do anything? <laughs> and that's the same question that I have, because he was just in a bucket. I mean, <laughs> what are we doing here? But I guess it really happened. So it's part of the historical record. So, yeah, both of these guys and now Dewey Cox influenced by the death of the brother. And just as Ray goes traumatically blind after the death of the brother, Dewey loses his sense of smell. This one was pretty much straight from Ray. I mean, except not smell. Exactly. Yeah, so this is one that I didn't know what they were going for until I popped Ray in. Because Ray Charles lost his sight shortly after his younger brother died. But the movie basically in Ray makes it seem so this is like a thing where biopics especially musical biopics where you're like exploring how someone could have made great art like really emphasizes any trauma anything that could have deepened the individual that could have led to them making art 
And the movie more or less says that it's the guilt of his brother dying that made him go blind, like this stress or something. But they were totally unrelated and they happened more apart than the movie makes it seem. And uh, I mean, obviously, like losing a younger sibling is a horrible thing to have happened. But the movie plays it up like it was this single defining thing that put him on the, the track for the rest of his life when it was just like one thing that happened to him, you know? Yeah, you're right. And I'm glad that we're not away from the brothers dying yet because I want to talk a little bit more about Johnny Cash's brother getting pulled through the saw. So I knew that this was going to happen. I knew for years before I ever watched this movie that we're going to get the scene where the brother goes through a table saw and they pulled punches. It was not what I was building in my mind. It's like you get a scene where he like is pushing a piece of wood through the saw and it gets caught. So, you know, you have that inclination planted in your head that, oh, the next time he tries to use it, it's going to go really wrong. Uh, but then you just see from Johnny Cash's perspective that the dad runs by and is like, oh, get the doctor. And then next we see the brother's laid up in the bed and he's just got like a bandage around himself. And he looks really good for a guy who just got mortally wounded with a power saw. Like... I would not expect somebody to be this intact as this kid looks. Basically, the scene I had in my mind was from UHF when the shop teacher is teaching Weird Al to use a table saw and he puts his hand through it and then he's just spraying blood everywhere. Yeah. Um, he's like, oh, just call me Mr. Butterfingers. <laughs> I, I think that you have walk hard to blame for that or at least your fixation on that aspect of it, because I, it has never struck me as weird that like this drama about music does not feature like a saw level. I don't know. What's a really gory movie, like blood splattering everywhere type scene. It's never struck me as weird. Feel like if you got a kid going through a saw, you just gotta <laughs> work with what you got. You gotta milk it. Yeah, maybe. But back in walk hard, we got to jump forward in time to win Dewey Cox is 14, and by this point, he's already played by fully adult John C. Riley, and he plays a high school talent show where he's got a band now, and he plays a song called Take My Hand, which is just a completely innocuous sounding song, talking about how he wants to hold hands, <laughs> but hearing this just leads to the immediate decay of the audience's moral fiber. They break out into bedlam and like girls are ripping off their clothes and a boy punches a priest because this is the devil's music. It's rock and roll. This is a part that always makes me laugh. Yeah, I really like this. And when the movie started for the first like 15 minutes or 10, 12 minutes or whatever, I was started jotting down notes of like every beat that was parodied from that I could like, what are all the lists of things that are parodied? So I could kind of run through them as we we're doing this. And then there were like 19 in this scene alone. And I was like, there's just too many. They were <laughs> comprehensive. Just assume that if it happens in a musical biopic, it gets made fun of and walk hard. So now Dewey's got a head out of town. He's going to try to make it in show business. And he heads off with this, supposedly 12-year-old girlfriend played by Kristen Wiig 
who soon enough becomes his first wife and just as soon is burdened with a ever growing number of children. There's always the first wife in the not always, but in the it seems like in the musical biopics, at least walk the line in Ray and I feel like in some of the other ones too, like the founder this happened yeah uh it almost happened in greatest showman and we talked about it when it didn't right the the first wife yeah i feel like they don't make biopics about people who are faithful to their spouses yeah my counterpoint to that is if you're rich and famous i think most rich and famous people are not faithful to their spouses so i mean if you're making a biopic it's out of someone who is rich and famous so that's where it goes hand in hand for me yeah, I guess the people who cheat are the people who have the opportunity to do so. So, But Dewey gets his start bussing tables at this African-American nightclub where the, the main performer there is Craig Robinson from The Office. But one night he <laughs> breaks both hands and gets laryngitis at the same time. So it's kind of like a Back to the Future school band situation. But now this is going to be Dewey's big chance that he gets to uh, fill in because he's memorized the performance, bussing tables in the background. And he does this flawless rendition of Craig Robinson's show, which includes the song, You've Got to Love Your Negro Man. <laughs> While the audience dances erotically as the nightclub owner repeatedly says my clientele comes here to dance erotically <laughs> uh, but the performance is really successful dewey's a big hit especially with the trio of jewish executives sitting in the audience and these are just over-the-top hasidic stereotypes with the big curly locks and the big flat brim hats and they have names like lachayim and mazel tov but, of course, they control the industry, so in the next scene, they've got him in a recording booth to lay down his first single. And this is very clearly a copy of the scene from Walk the Line, where first he does, like, a, a gospel song or something, and the, the dude in the booth says, No, people don't want gospel anymore, and Johnny Cash says, Well, I'll play you one of my own. Uh, only here it starts out with John C. Riley singing That's Amore. <laughs> and I think it's really good. I love this version of That's Amore. Oh, yeah? <laughs> uh, but then the guy in the booth who, um, I don't know this actor's name, but he's part of the um, Christopher Guest troupe that makes like Spinal Tap and Best in Show and all of those mockumentaries. Um, and I actually saw him in a play once. He's one of the judges in the Pitch Perfect acapella movies. Uh, anyway, this guy says, wait, stop. I'm going to stop you right there. That was a terrible, terrible, terrible That's Amore. <laughs> yeah, and one bit from the commentary was this was actually one of the very first scenes they filmed. And they were all kind of nervous going into the filming because they didn't know exactly it was all like a kind of bizarre and ambitious project that they were trying to do and they there was like they still couldn't quite put their finger on what the tone of it all was going to end up being and then as soon as they recorded with this guy and i'm, I'm trying to look up his name because i recognized him too 
as soon as they recorded the scene, like he immediately got it. And they're like, OK, yeah, that's what this movie is. So the rest of the movie kind of sprang forth from this scene from a uh, filming perspective. He's got some great lines. It's like, now I brought you in here because these Jewish gentlemen recommended you. They usually have good taste. But I have to tell you, today you have shaken my faith in the Jewish people. <laughs> John C. Reilly says, there's nothing I'd like to do more right now than to restore your faith in Judaism. And the song that he ends up playing, the one that he himself wrote, is called Walk Hard. It's the title of the movie. And it's basically about how he's willing to strive towards his goals no matter what obstacles he encounters. And uh, what do you think of the music that they wrote for this movie, Dan? Uh, this song specifically, maybe. I think this song is really good. I think uh, there's a lot of good music in this. I mean, they, they really took the musical aspect seriously. It would have been easy to just make the music bad or like not spend that much time on it because everybody's there for the jokes. But I feel like it really adds a dimension by how they wrote some pretty impressive and, and catchy tracks and they're well performed and riley's actually doing the vocals and he sounds really good he's a good singer and it's good what do you think yeah i'm a big fan they cover a whole variety of genres mm -hmm. as the story goes along because it spans multiple decades and what really strikes me is that movies like walk the line and ray they basically write their own ticket because the music all already exists. It's a jukebox musical where you just work in all the greatest hits, you string them along with a narrative, and you got your movie. There there you go. Right. Uh, but here, the all the music is new. So I think it deserves a lot of points for that. Yeah, and I think in... I, I could be wrong. In Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix, I think he performs all the music in that. I could be wrong. Maybe not when they're like, if they're playing recordings in the background. But mm -hmm. I think when it's like showing him on screen, he's the one performing. But in Ray, to me, it was extremely obvious when it was Jamie Foxx and when it was Ray Charles. And I think the second half of the movie, like when Ray Charles was established and they had lots and lots of recordings of him, that was when they had more and more of him actually doing it. But I, I liked in this one that it seemed... I mean, at least with the vocals, it was actually the actors in the movie, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will say I liked Joaquin Phoenix's music performances. I thought he did a good job nailing the Johnny Cash vocals. Nice deep voice. Yeah. And uh, who's the co-star? What's her name? And that is also really good at singing. That was Reese Witherspoon yeah. as June Carter. She's good at the singing, too. But um, th this track, I looked it up. Uh, it was written by uh, Walk Hard, that is. Walk Hard, the track, was written by Marshall Crenshaw, who is a, he's kind of a, he's a real rock musician. So it was kind of cool that they, they brought in like a real songwriter uh, for that. The one thing that disappointed me is there were no Adam Schlesinger songs in here, who is my favorite songwriter for hire when they need to mimic different musical styles. He's the best at it. And there, there's none of him on this soundtrack, which was a bummer for me. I've talked about him. And of course, it made me think of That Thing You Do, which I know I talk about now every other episode, if not every episode. <laughs> well, I think this is the moment to talk about it, because as soon as they record this song, it's climbing the charts. And it had me thinking this time of that movie as well. Yeah. But just how in that movie, they had this whole huge 
soundtrack of songs that mimic different styles, but are not actually covers of songs. You know, they're like invented to be in that style. Pretty cool. Yeah. And we get a montage of this song taking off, climbing up the radio rankings. And what I think is pretty funny is that apparently this montage is like taking place almost in real time. You know, usually a, a montage condenses time. Uh, but, <laughs> but at the end, there's a DJ who's putting the record on. He says, and here's the new hit single from Dewey Cox recorded just 30 minutes ago. <laughs> and this is Jack McBrayer as the radio DJ. So Fix It Felix from Wreck-It Ralph. We got two of the leads now. Well, also a guy from Forgetting Sarah Marshall last week. Right. And uh, in the wake of this walk hard single success, Dewey starts to climb and he and his band are releasing just one hit after another. But with fame comes temptations. So as Dan said, he starts growing apart from his first wife and he also gets into drugs. And this is an element that made me glad that I watched Ray, because this definitely feels like it's from that. But it starts out with weed. He walks into a back room and he sees his band member, Sam, played by actor Tim Meadows. And he says, get out of here, Dewey. You don't want no part of this shit. <laughs> but every time he's ostensibly trying to dissuade Dewey from trying the drugs, every quality that he lists of what the drug does is a very positive thing. Right. Pot, you can't overdose on it, and you're unable to get physically addicted to it and all these things. It doesn't give you a hangover. <laughs> it also, this escalating drug scene where it was kind of the same structure for the joke but just more and more hard drugs also had me thinking of a different parody film which is airplane where he, i picked the wrong is it the wrong week or the wrong day to start to stop drinking and then it eventually is i picked the wrong day to stop huffing glue and just like all these terrible ridiculous drugs that he's <laughs> picked the wrong day to stop doing <laughs> we're doing pills uppers and downers they're the logical next step for you. <laughs> and yeah, it just goes on and on that he walks in on Sam and some ladies doing various drugs. It's, it's, it's weed at first, and then it's cocaine, the pills. To By the end of the movie, he's doing L LSD and PCP and just virtually every drug known to man. One thing we get during this Rise segment that... The movie does a good job making fun of, but is also in all of these other biopics is they have cameos of other famous musicians who were getting their own breaks at the same time. And my favorite one might be we have Jack White from the White Stripes playing Elvis Presley, who's talking either in some sort of pigeon or just making gibberish words. I don't know. So a couple things on this one is. Jack White is in this movie, and as we're going to see, Jack Black is in the movie. To my knowledge, the only film with both Jack White and Jack Black. <laughs> I think they should collaborate and play a cover of Ebony and Ivory. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I would, that would be so funny. I mean, that'd be in kind of in poor taste because that's about, you know, <laughs> racial harmony and they're two white guys. But man, <laughs> that would be funny. 
Um, another thing is apparently, the, I don't. I wanted them to talk about this more in the commentary because they said it and then they moved on. I was like, I have a lot of questions right now. Apparently, when they recruited John C. Riley, he was in talks to do another film with him and Jack White, who was at that point looking to break into Hollywood as an actor, as the two co-stars. And it fell through. So they or it either fell through or they decided not to do it and did this instead. And so uh, Riley brought him in for a cameo also. But what is the project that was going to have John C. Riley and Jack White as co-stars? <laughs> They're two people with just totally bizarre energies. Man, I wish they could have made that. I would definitely have seen that. Yeah, I'm curious. But also, as the decades go by, Cox has a hand in, like, every emerging genre of popular music. So he does, like, early punk rock stuff. There are Bob Dylan parody scenes where he's singing protest songs. Oh, the Bob Dylan one is so good. He does a really good Bob Dylan impression. And the song is like a perfect parody of the eccentricities of Dylan's writing. <laughs> He's just singing like real words, but nonsense sentences. Yeah. It's like the royal jelly in the Coliseum. And <laughs> his bandmates are listening. And they're like, what the hell is this song about? And Tim Meadows says, you guys are idiots. This song is very deep. <laughs> this movie might have been the might be the point where I I bring Tim Meadows into my secret weapon scene stealer category. Just like any time that he's in the movie, I'm I know he's making it better and I'm happy. He's so funny in this, and it made me think about how he's funny in just about everything. But he tends to be like written as more of a straight character, but is always so funny. Is he the one who does all the drug scenes in this one? Yeah. Everything with him is drugs in this, but yeah, like every line that he gets is funny. And you never once paid for drugs. Not once. Um, <laughs> there's another protest song that Dewey sings uh, that is in favor of midgets against the oppression of short people. <laughs> we see there like dwarf actors in the back of the rally with short power signs <laughs> and there's one who's in a black panther party outfit and he has a sign that says short panther party <laughs> and it's got lyrics like you shout for me to put you down but i'm marching today for your cause i'm banging the drum your big day will come when they remake the wizard of oz it's pretty good. Yeah. Not always tasteful, but generally pretty funny. Yeah, the, according to the commentary, this was a moment that they thought they were worried they had crossed the line, <laughs> gone a little too far, <laughs> especially when they were bringing in a whole bunch of extras who were kind of the butt of the joke here. But apparently <laughs> all, all of the little people, all of the people afflicted with dwarfism who appear in this, at least outwardly said that they thought it was really, really funny and they were excited to be a part of it. And, of course, it's a, another thing poking fun at, like, performative allyism. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah, there's a lot of these, like, deliberately miscast celebrity cameos playing 
famous people in the history of rock and roll, like uh, Frankie Muniz, Malcolm in the Middle is there as Buddy Holly, and later on Dewey Cox is with the Maharishi in India, and you get all the Beatles there, and <laughs> Jack Black plays Paul McCartney, which is really out there. You know he's Paul McCartney because he just keeps telling everybody that he's Paul McCartney. <laughs> This scene was really good. All the talent that you had in this, because it was was Paul Rudd one of them. Am I getting that mixed up? Oh, let me see. I recognize some of the faces, but was like Jason Schwartzberg one of them? I gotta look it up. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman was definitely one. All right, let's pull it up. Yeah, so it's Paul Rudd. What? Paul Rudd was one of them. Uh, Jack Black, Justin Long, and Jason Schwartzman. That's right. So. Paul Rudd was John Lennon. You're right. Jack Black was McCartney. Justin Long, who you probably recognize who he is. Oh, oh, he's the Mac. He played the Mac in the Mac commercials. That was going to be my touch point, too. Yeah, I'm a Mac. I'm a PC. He's the guy who played the Mac. Uh, and then Jason Schwartzman, who has been in, I think, every single Wes Anderson movie or almost all Wes Anderson movies. Yes, I called him Jason Schwartzberg incorrectly. There is a character in this film named Schwartzberg. He's the agent of Dewey Cox. He's played by an actor named David Krumholtz. And what's blew my mind when I watched it is he's in Ray playing Ray Charles' agent. He's like the same actor playing the same role in both movies. Yeah, not just that. He's like the the second agent not the first agent, the second agent, who's like slightly more renegade and maverick, you know? It's kind of funny. And like, I don't know that I've seen this actor a whole lot of other places, uh, but he's in both of these playing the same part. I was chuckling. It's good. And in Walk the Line, a really prominent narrative is the developing romance between Johnny Cash and June Carter, who becomes his second wife. In that movie, it's Reese Witherspoon. Here we have a parallel where Dewey Cox starts performing duets with a woman named Darlene Madison, who's played by Jenna Fisher from The Office. So Pam is here. Yeah, I haven't seen her in too much stuff. I was kind of surprised. I guess this was pretty close to the peak of The Office's popularity, or at least ratings. Mm-hmm. She does a good job, though. Yeah, she's pretty good. There were a, a couple of allusions to her being difficult to deal with. Oh, really? In the commentary. Not, nothing too toxic, but a couple references mm -hmm. to it. Man, I got to check out this commentary reel. But <laughs> the first song they sing is called Let's Duet. I've mentioned it before. It's a song where every line is a double entendre. Mm -hmm. And the music video for it is pretty funny. There's this one shot where they're in a wood shop, <laughs> like putting furniture together, making furniture with like over the top sexual gestures. <laughs> like uh, Jenna Fisher is like sanding a table leg up and down. But <laughs> the shot that makes me laugh is John C. Riley. He's got this big mallet and he's just pounding like on a table or something just with wild abandon looking straight towards jenna fisher and just not paying attention to where he's swinging this big mallet 
and it's hard to describe unless you see it, but just his intense, wild eyes, not looking at all at the hammer that's just wildly swinging around, <laughs> makes me laugh out loud every single time. That's good. So over many years, Darlene and Dewey build this relationship, and they pop out many an additional child in the process, even though she like keeps reminding him that they are just friends and need to just be friends. And, like, every time they get close, she pulls away, uh, which is very much from Walk the Line. Although, maybe now is where I'll say I found Joaquin Phoenix to be creepy. And this is just kind of in every Joaquin Phoenix movie I think I've seen. I kind of think of him as playing some variant of, like, when he was Commodus, the creepy Roman emperor in Gladiator. Man, I thought this performance was absolutely terrific. I mean, he definitely is kind of off-putting, and I think that's an interesting take that it, like... Well, I think where you're going with this is that he he makes the character kind of unlikable and opaque. It's like... I will say this movie, Walk the Line, did make me a little bit less interested in Johnny Cash rather than more interested. He just seemed like kind of... uh, self-absorbed and and kind of toxic and stuff which i know is part of the point but like anyways i thought phoenix's performance was really inhabited this really interesting character just kind of uh, a terrific performance but uh you said you found it kind of off-putting well he is just very sexually aggressive in his pursuit yeah of this woman who like i think is married when he meets her and he just will not take no for an answer, despite that very frequently being the answer that he gets. And then the movie ends with him, like, he interrupts a show that he's doing with her, and he says, No, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to go on with this song until I get an answer to a question. And he proposes to her, and she's like, Uh... And, you know, people are waiting for the show to go on. Finally, she's like, okay, I guess. And then that's the big happy moment that we go out on. It's like, wow, that was under duress. And now the movie's over. Yeah, it's a really odd moment in Walk the Line. And it's it's always bothered me, too. I feel like it was written to be more romantic. It's like, when you this is a problem with the biopic, is you're doing blending what makes good drama with what what is accurate and what is a thing that really happened or really could have happened and can be verified. And like, I think this movie tries to have it both ways where it's like the big romantic thing, but also it like reflects the reality that he was kind of an asshole, you know? And I don't know. I agree. It, it is an odd moment. But, but I'll repeat that I did like the music performances in this one. And I thought uh, Phoenix really did sound similar to Johnny Cash and there were shots that were like from the side where he kind of looked like Johnny Cash I mean they got the hair very right um so I bought it I mean it worked it was a good casting yeah they they did go less of the route of make him look exactly like Johnny Cash like I never was like oh wait am I actually looking at Johnny Cash Ray on the other hand what Jamie Foxx did he looked exactly like young ray charles if you've ever seen young ray charles yeah it was a little uncanny i'll say i had heard like hit the road jack before but i don't think i'd heard most of the other ray charles songs that are in that film and 
I think that really helped it in my estimation that it was a lot of music that was new to me mm. um, because I was really vibing with a lot of that. Oh, man. Uh, like when, when he performs the Mess Around song mm -hmm. that is kind of his moment where first he plays something that the dude doesn't like and then he's like, well, let's try this. And there's just so much energy when Ray Charles plays. He's doing the, like, bobbing around. Yeah. Uh, I was feeling it. Yeah, I mean Charles is an incredible musician. The the one Ray Charles song that always just slays me is um, "What Did I Say," the one where they break it into two parts. That's the long one, right? That they recorded. They're like, "How are we even gonna put this on a record? It's too long." That's like one of the greatest songs of all time, in my opinion. That that's so good. I've got to listen to it because I didn't really get a sense of what it was in the movie. Right. They're like just kind of goofing off because they got to fill time at the end of a show and they're just kind of ripping so I, I think i need to listen to what it actually came together as well i mean that's mainly what makes it so great is it's just like this incredible riff that kind of builds to like this call and repeat type thing and yeah it's it's all about the the mood and the energy that's cool meanwhile back in walk hard the palpable sexual tension with Darlene leads to the first marriage of Dewey Cox falling apart. Kristen Wiig is left by the wayside. But Darlene and Dewey, over the years, build this strong relationship. Uh, by the end, he's eventually able to get his sense of smell back. And uh, he starts to reconnect with his children, eventually of which there's just an impossibly large number. And they're all different, like, ethnicities and just a, a whole lot of variety among these children that are apparently his his numerous love children, which I found out is another thing that comes from Ray and is actually downplayed in the movie. But Ray Charles had 12 kids by 10 women. Yeah. Quite a, quite a few. Quite a brood. Yes. Um, Johnny Cash, I think, had five by three women, which is, is still nothing to shake a stick at. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's still a lot. Nothing to shake a stick at. There's this bit in the 70s. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, my summary is kind of all over the place because there's just a lot of little moments and a lot of like call and repeat with the the themes where these setups repeat over and over like uh doing the drugs but uh there's a bit in the 60s where it's a parody of brian wilson of the beach boys which i did not know about the first time i watched the movie uh in real life i guess brian wilson uh, led this experimental project to put together first the Pet Sounds album, which eventually did come together, and then a project called Smile that actually never did come together. But the parody of that here is really funny to me. Because you've got Dewey Cox strung out on LSD trying to make this masterpiece of like recorded and looped multi-track wall of sound stuff using all these disparate musical elements so he's got like maori tribesmen in the booth and like didgeridoo players and he's recording a goat 
and like a whole string orchestra. It's pretty funny. And this whole bit I really love. John C. Riley gets some terrific pronunciations of words in this movie, but the way he says didgeridoo might be my favorite. <laughs> also, you can't overlook cocaine. Yeah, that's a good one too. I think I'd like to try me some of that cocaine. Doesn't he say something about the exotic animals or something like that? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> okay. Yes. Thank you for shouting out the exotic pets because one of his like hallmarks for success is all the weird animals he can buy as he gets more and more famous. And, oh man, one of the things is he gets a giraffe. So he's eating dinner at his house with all his bandmates and his friends. And this giraffe leans in through the window and is like eating off of the table. <laughs> and Dewey says, so I performed at a circus. They said, we'll give you $5,000. I said, no, you won't. You'll give me that giraffe. <laughs> and they did. They gave it right to me. <laughs> but of course, he also gets like a chimpanzee. And um, when he's talking to his wife, uh, his first wife, about how she's going to leave him, they have this big dramatic fight, uh, which was another beat that I recognized in Walk the Line. They had like th this exact uh, cadence and timbre to their line delivery, but here they're just talking about completely silly things. And so he's like bargaining with her. Oh, don't leave, Edith. I'll do all these things. And... <laughs> The thing that he mentions he's going to do is he says, I'll get you a crow that can talk and I'll teach you phrases that I say. <laughs> and she says, this ain't about no exotic pets. <laughs> no, every time that came up, I was laughing. That's good. Yeah. Is that the that argument? Is that the first time we get the, the sink runner? <laughs> it might be. Talk a little bit about yeah. that. So in, man, I watched all these in conjunction, so I might get it mi mixed up. I think it's in Walk the Line. There's a weird scene that feels out of place where he's like having a meltdown and he just tears a sink off a wall and it's never brought up again. It just happens one time. And I guess I wasn't the only one who thought that this felt out of place because in Walk Hard, the writers clearly got a huge kick out of it because they just they first they have the scene with it. I'm like, OK, they they too thought that was funny. And then like it builds, it escalates. They do more and more scenes where he is tearing sinks out of walls. It's just the thing that happens over and over again. And then it, I remember at the end, I can't remember what is it like the PCP rage something where he goes into a bathroom and he tears every single sink off the wall like this yeah there's like 12 sinks and i think it actually might be i i think it does happen at least once during the pcp scene but then uh at the end when he's doing like his big final tribute performance you get this montage of like all these moments over the years and yeah one of the shots is he steps into this big public bathroom with just a whole row of like a dozen sinks he just goes down one by one tearing them out uh according to amazon joaquin phoenix ripping out the sink was improvised so. oh man <laughs> i guess they didn't even know he was gonna do that that's wild i was gonna say i bet that's like a thing that came from an autobiography 
One time I was so stoned, I just tore it out of the wall. But you're saying this was like Joaquin Phoenix going method on set. Imagine you're filming that that day and you you all of a sudden Joaquin Phoenix comes on and just starts tearing a sink out of a wall. God. <laughs> That's showbiz, babe. Yeah. And yeah, eventually Dewey starts putting his life back together as he's grown old. John C. Riley has got some sear gray locks at this point and uh, reunites with Jenna Fisher, reunites with all his kids, and he starts putting together this final tribute performance that's going to sum up his life. And he writes this song called Beautiful Ride, which is really like genuinely touching about how he's embraced his mortality and how you got to Love yourself, but not only yourself. Yeah, it's a good song. And I agree. I like how they play this moment sincere here at the end. You're talking about the reconnections. One bit that you... I don't think we've touched on. That might be the single most iconic thing from the movie, at least if I'm to base it on casual conversations I've had about this movie with people like... Twice at work and once on a, a Discord chat, I brought up that I was watching this movie and li- all three times. So that's three times I brought it up. And all three times people responded the same way. They just said, the wrong kid died. So th- that's a bit that uh, the dad character in this is he says over and over, the wrong kid died in like increasingly intense and obscure non sequitur ways to to John C. Riley, which is a riff, of course, on uh, Walk the Line, where we know that it's I don't know if it's explicitly said or whatever, but we know that that's how the dad feels. But my favorite is in like one of the last times we see it, the dad is just John. He doesn't even know John C. Riley's there. He's just working and he's humming to himself. The wrong kid died. And I thought that was really <laughs> funny. Yeah, good call. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, They really nailed the dad in Walk the Line. Yeah, Um, because in Walk the Line, he's played by Robert Patrick, the Terminator from Terminator 2. Whoa, I didn't recognize him. He's just very unhappy with Johnny Cash's life choices. Um, Something that's in the extended version of Walk Hard is it actually had the Thanksgiving scene from Walk the Line. Hmm which is like when the conflict between dad and Johnny Cash comes to a head. Right. You know, it's it's the scene where he's got the tractor out there, like stuck in the mud, and he's like, whoa, you got that fine piece of equipment, and what are you doing with it? You're leaving it out in the rain. Right. Um, <laughs> but in Walk Hard, they're having Thanksgiving dinner on this big trampoline because it's in uh, the 60s during this Beach Boy act when he's strung out and he's got this big trampoline that he's like living on. (laughs) But I don't know. uh, This was the first time I'd ever watched the extended edition. So I thought it was pretty funny that they're all on this trampoline trying to eat, which is pretty precarious. And then Dewey and the dad get up and start fighting in the middle of the trampoline. And like everybody's food is falling everywhere. Uh, One of the better editions. That's pretty funny. That sounds good. And yeah, what I think you're getting at is that uh, so things are not going well between Dewey and his father either. And eventually 
uh, Dewey is trying to get back on track and, and right old wrongs. And so he goes to confront the dad and kind of apologizes, says, I've always loved you, dad. And then the father pulls out a machete. He says, the only way to settle things between us is with a machete duel. During which the father accidentally cuts himself in half. <laughs> he says, I'm sorry, son. Until this moment, I never realized just how easy it is to accidentally cut someone in half with a machete. <laughs> and so this is Raymond Barry is the name of the actor who plays the dad. And he's really good, really funny. But apparently he got like uh, a couple weeks worth of machete fighting lessons so that his machete work in this scene would be good. And he like came ready to duel on set. <laughs> It's ready to rock, man. And if you go and watch that, you got you can see he's pretty good. Yeah, well, I mean, he, that makes his line even better. That once he's dying there on the floor, he says, "Oh, son, now I wish I'd spent the years getting to know you instead of training my mind and body to kill you in a machete fight." Uh, another tidbit from the commentary is that uh, they had another idea for the death of the father, and. I don't think this would have worked, but I thought it was kind of a funny idea. But basically have the wrong kid died just be some elaborate misunderstanding. And he was talking about something else. And this whole time, the dad wasn't actually all that mad. And they don't realize it until uh, John C. Riley approaches him towards the end of the movie. And then they go sailing and as like a father son bonding thing and the sail spinning around accidentally cuts the dad in half. And that would be the way that he died, which I thought would have been kind of funny. <laughs> but now things are on a, a higher note. Dewey plays this beautiful ride song at his final concert. And we mentioned the sinks. I love the montage during this song, but all throughout there's great montages in this movie, which is something I was expecting in Walk the Line and then didn't get. They don't really have montages in that one. There are some in Ray, but here in Walk Hard, it really made me wonder just how much footage did they shoot for this movie? Because there's all kinds of stuff that pops up in these montages uh, that even in the extended version that adds on like an additional 25 minutes, there's there's just stuff that's not in the movie proper that flashes by. Uh, like in the scene where he's bonding with his children, there's a, a bit where he's like, now, what are the deeper themes of Macbeth? And they're just talking about like things that happen in Macbeth and how it's a power struggle for the Scottish throne. <laughs> And I don't even have examples. There's the sink thing, uh, but there's more. There's like, uh, like he and um, Jerry, the dad from Rick and Morty. What's that actor's name? Chris Parnell. They have like a 70s detective show that we see in like a blink in one of these montages. Um, and during this beautiful ride one, there's a shot of Dewey and the upper half of the dad playing ukuleles together <laughs> oh man in the 70s he had a variety show 
the uh, Dewey Cox show. And this was something that Johnny Cash actually did. He had a variety show called The Johnny Cash Show. Whoa. And with how much importance it gets in this movie, I was expecting it to be in Walk the Line, but Walk the Line ends like with the Folsom Prison Show or just right after that in the 60s. I didn't know that. So we didn't have any of this. It was making me think of the Sonny and Cher show. Mm -hmm. But another tidbit from the commentary is that... uh, Kasdan and Apatow really, really liked this for whatever reason. They latched on to this variety show. And one idea they had for a bonus feature, if the movie took off, was to basically write one or more episodes of the variety show and have that be a bonus feature on the disc. But I didn't flip through all the bonus features. I don't think that quite got around to being made, unfortunately. Yeah, but you can tell it's something that they liked. And in the extended version, this is by far the most expanded sequence. Oh, really? Like, it just goes on and on with this 70s variety show. And I was almost wondering if it was like a Boogie Nights tribute. Mm. Because we're spending so much time in this disco age with John C. Riley. Uh, But he has like three songs in the variety show era in the extended cut. Uh, in the theatrical version, we just get like a little snippet of him singing Starman by David Bowie. But he has multiple numbers and a, a whole subplot with a third wife in the extended cut. I guess there was a model from the 70s whose name was Cheryl Teagues. And she's here playing herself so that she can marry Dewey Cox and become Cheryl Cox Teagues. <laughs> But another thing in the 70s sequence is he gets interviewed by Jane Lynch. So we've got Wreck-It Ralph lead number three. The only one who wasn't here was Sarah Silverman. They would have had all four. Oh, man. I guess they just, they have like every notable comedy actor from this time, or like 85% of them. Jonah Hill gets thrown in there as a, the ghost of the brother It's just an embarrassment of riches of incredible comic talent here in the cast. Yeah, Ed Helms shows up for like 20 seconds. Right. Harold Ramis from Ghostbusters is here. Sacha Baron Cohen, Borat, uh, he was originally slated to be in the Beatles scene. They didn't say who. Um, I I was going to guess the maybe the Maharishi. I don't know, but apparently they could he wanted to be in it and they wanted him to be in it but they just couldn't get the calendar to work so they couldn't get him in there and then it just so happened that a the movie that he was filming was in like the same studio like one over or something and also they were not his scenes weren't actually being filmed that day so he just walked over and attended the filming of the Beatles scene but didn't actually get to appear in it because they hadn't uh, actually written him into it. So I just thought that I thought that was an interesting anecdote, too, that you could have had Sasha Barrett Cohen in there, too. Wow. So even people that you don't see were just there. Yeah, that's funny. Also, during this final concert that Dewey Cox plays, he's looking out into the wings and he sees the ghosts of people who have died during the movie looking on appreciatively. So in the theatrical cut, it's the brother and the dad 
and then one of the Jewish executives dies in the audience during the show, and then his ghost walks up on stage. But this is a nod, obviously, to the end of Return of the Jedi, when Luke looks over and he sees Yoda and Obi-Wan, and then Anakin walks up as a ghost. Because, interesting factoid, Jake Kasdan, the director and writer of this film, is the son of screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, so we get a little Return of the Jedi shout out here. <laughs> Interestingly, in the extended cut, another thing that really got expanded is during the final concert that Dewey Cox plays here with Beautiful Ride, he goes into his dressing room and starts talking to himself in the mirror. And the Jonah Hill ghost shows up, the adult brother. But then also, like, the dad shows up as a, a spirit. And then the mom, like, different people just keep filing in Dewey talking to himself. So he's got, like, his inner child, who was the kid playing Dewey at the start. And then, like, Dewey and the mirror Dewey are separate entities. And then Dewey's feminine side, who is John C. Riley and drag, walks in. <laughs> and it just goes on and on while he's, like, giving himself this pep talk. And then almost all of them show up as ghosts during the the bit at the end. <laughs> this stage is just crammed with them. And I wondered if this was a jab at the special editions and stuff. How they changed, you know, swapped the ghost out for Hayden Christensen and do all this editing after the fact. Oh, interesting. Uh, but then the very final thing that happens in Walk Hard is the concert comes to an end. He plays this big dramatic chord... And it shows like a little uh, vignette, a little mask photo of Dewey Cox. It says, Dewey Cox, 1936 to 2007. And it says, Dewey died three minutes after this concert. <laughs> and that's Walk Hard from 2007. The Dewey Cox story. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with regards to uh, Walk the Line specifically or Ray? Things we haven't spoken about yet? A couple things. Uh, Walk the Line. I already mentioned I thought both the leads were really good, and Reese Witherspoon actually won an Oscar for it, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix was nominated, but that, that Best Actor crew was loaded. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman ended up winning for Capote, a different biopic. And I thought the the acting was really good, but and the music too, of course, but I, I just found myself disinterested in the story as it went like it i never felt like there was some hidden depth that made johnny cash more interesting or if there was walk the line didn't really convince me that it was worth trying to understand right i'll say i went in as a big johnny cash fan i really like johnny cash's music and even stuff like on the periphery of his career like when he was on sesame street and he sang nasty dan with oscar the grouch or when he was the talking coyote in the spirit trip episode of the Simpsons. He did a lot of great stuff. Yeah. A really entertaining guy, really good singer. But this made me like question my fandom. This is just to me like a very aggressive 
performance. I don't know. This gave me weird vibes. And I wondered if I need to maybe read a little bit more into Johnny Cash behind the scenes. Yeah. But I think his romance with June Carter is weird as some of the vibes are in the movie like is generally regarded as like a happy ending type marriage. I, I don't know if they stayed. I think they did stay together for the rest of their days. I'm not hundred percent sure, but yeah, I think you're right. They had ups and downs and ultimately they persisted through to be, have their happily ever after, you know, which the movie does not do a great job of convincing you. I thought, no, it ends very abruptly. And Coming off of Walk Hard, it felt truncated to me hmm. because, you know, it starts out that he's playing the show at Folsom Prison. And then at the end of the movie, we catch back up and we see that concert. And then we see the show where he proposes and she accepts. And then the very final bit is he's like having a party and his family is there and like his dad is there. So I guess they patch things up, but there's not a lot of weight or time given to that. He's just like there with the grandkids now. Right. And then it's over. Whereas in Walk Hard, because it's 2007, they really bring you all the way up to the present. And there's just like a lot of time to work in more scenes they wanted to make fun of. So it feels more, feels more comprehensive. Yeah. What about Ray? Yeah, this was my first time seeing Ray and Jamie Foxx is something else in this. He like goes all out. I, I think he won the Oscar for this one. He did. Yeah, yeah. Best actor. That said, like it felt a little bit of a showy performance. Like I kept thinking, man, this is crazy how much he looks like a blind person and makes me think that he's blind, but I'm not sure like it made me connect with the character more deeply very much. I don't know. I, there was something that just kept me at a little bit of a distance, but this one, it's really long. The movie's like over two and a half hours. Did you notice that it was so long? I did. I was daunted when I started it. Uh, this, of course, I was still going through the COVID and I was thinking, well, what else do you have to do? You might as well. Dan watched 30 Tom Hanks movies, so you got to do it. Got to step up sometime. But I was glad I did. It didn't feel too overly long to me because by the end, I was having a good time. I was really enjoying the Ray Charles music. And I don't know, I just felt more like love in the production values in this one. Yeah. It felt less like going through the motions for me compared to Walk the Line. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I have them in a pretty similar tier, but for slightly different reasons. I think Ray, I think the script is kind of wonky. It's like it rushes a lot at the beginning and then sub segments take so long to get through. I don't know, just his record label trouble and stuff. Uh, it just feels like it drags on and on. Um, but overall, I, I do think it it. Oh, yeah. And then just like all of his decadent drug downfalls over and over again. Just got kind of exhausting, you know. Oh, the bit I didn't say about Walk Hard is at one point he goes to rehab and they've got him strapped to a bed in a hospital room. <laughs> and John C. Reilly's just flopping around on the bed while the camera like dolly zooms all around him. And he says, I'm so cold. And this nurse, 
looks at him and says, we need more blankets. <laughs> and then in the next shot, he's thrashing around. He says, I'm so hot. Then he says, he needs less blankets. And then he's still thrashing and he says, I'm, I'm hot and cold. And the nurse looks over at the doctor and says, he needs more blankets and less blankets. And the doctor says, I believe you're right. <laughs> and just the way that he is so deadpan and serious about this nonsense <laughs> is another moment that completely cracks me up. And I'll say on day one with the COVID, when I, I got the positive test in the morning by the night, this was me. <laughs> I'm hot and cold. I need more blankets and less blankets. That's pretty funny. You, you lived the Dewey Cox experience yourself. Right. And then when he comes out of it, he says, all these blankets have saved my life. <laughs> but uh, so that's a play on the rehab scene in Ray. At the, like all of a sudden, 20 minutes to go in Ray, he goes to rehab and it's like this really bizarre turn in filmmaking to like this really trippy, almost psychedelic like get inside the head of this guy who's going through these uh not dts that's what you get when it's alcohol but like withdrawals or whatever where he's trying to to get through without the the heroin and i was like what the hell has just happened in this movie because it's gone from like a very straightforward filmmaking style to all of a sudden this really trippy stuff there was definitely some other subjective stuff early on because he keeps having hallucinations of the dead brother, like, floating in. That's true. Like, suddenly there will be floods, and because he's blind, he'll be like, oh, there's water here. But really, there isn't water. It's all just in his mind because he keeps flashing back to the, the brother drowning. But that was another thing that's kind of in Walk Hard, where he'll do, like, these sudden dramatic, like, steps back when he'll recall the death of the brother. And that's very much from Ray. I also, I thought Ray had really cool cinematography. I just thought it had a really interesting look to it that I just wanted to keep watching it as soon as it was on. So Definitely. But yeah, it, I was glad to catch up with that one. I'd always been intrigued by it. So those were our films for this week. And are we ready to say whether these movies are good, Dan? Sure, let's do it. All right, so... We're here at our signature section, Is It Good?, where we rate our movies on an eight-point scale, ranging from one out of eight, which is our bottom baseline, very not good, up to eight out of eight, our masterpiece rating, which we've termed Tour de Good. Is this one, Dan, where you want to list out what the eight actually are? Why not? So one out of eight is very not good. A two out of eight is not good. A three out of eight is not not good. A four out of eight is good-ish. A five out of eight is good. A six out of eight is very good. A seven out of eight is exceptionally good. And an eight out of eight is our masterpiece rating tour day good. And so what do you think, Dan? Do you want to start with our movie of the day? Or do you want to begin with one of those movies that we watched to give us some context? Let's do the buildup. It's the order that I watched in. The, the actual biopics that led to the creation of the parody. So we have Walk the Line and Ray. And for me, 
both are examples of prestige filmmaking where you're getting good production values. Um, you're getting a, an excellent cast. But on the other hand, they're also movies that to me are flawed in different ways with taking themselves a little bit too seriously and having kind of wonky scripts. I do think the acting is overall quite good. And I, I mentioned I really love the acting and, and walk the line. Um, but for me, neither of them quite crossed the threshold into good. I did more or less enjoy watching them, but not to the point that I would quite recommend other people go out of their way to watch them unless you have a particular affinity for either of those musicians. So I'm going to give both a good-ish, a four out of eight. Both Ray and Walk the Line get a good-ish for me. Um, and it, also keep in mind, I just am kind of weary of biopics in general. So you'll, and, and on average, I find myself not always reacting too positively, even if they're 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 well-made films there. So you know, always take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But that's me for my is it good for Ray and walk the line. Brian, what about you? Right. Maybe it'll be a while before we consider another biopic since we got such a heavy dose <laughs> this go round. Decided not to throw Amadeus into the mix, even though it is a biopic of a musician. Oh man, I love Amadeus. At some point in the future, though, that's going to be on the table. Still very much a biopic, uh, but an entertaining one. But here with these films, Walk the Line and Ray. So Walk the Line, I'm right there with you. It gets a good-ish for me, four out of eight. And it's because I really like Johnny Cash's music. This is one that I had been meaning to watch for a long time, mostly for that. And then, of course, because it was an inspiration for Walk Hard. But I didn't love it. You know, when you got a movie that it's essentially a jukebox musical, that all of this music was written already. I, I didn't really like any of the new stuff. I, the performances were good. Um, they were obviously doing their darndest. I mean, they were... What do I want to say? I just I didn't love it. The energy from Joaquin was weird and intense, and he was just very predatory. And then it ended abruptly and then was over. I don't know if I'll watch it again, but I probably will put on some Johnny Cash music. Then Ray, I'm going to give it a better rating. Uh, for me, this was actually very good. Maybe just into the territory of six out of eight. And I was vibing just the way that Ray Charles rocks around at the piano when he plays. It drew me in. And there were songs here that I had never heard before. Uh, I really enjoyed the scene when he records the Mess Around song. There's a character uh, in this movie that I had never heard of before who is a, like a record producer. A guy with the record label. A guy named Ahmet Erdogan who is this bald turkish guy with big glasses and it seemed cartoonish but he looks like identically like the real dude if you go by the picture on wikipedia i had the exact same experience i was like there's no way he looked like this but he looked exactly like that <laughs> and he wrote the song he like you know they they want something unique from ray charles they're like we want something that really screams ray charles what what are we gonna do how are we gonna get that and then the guy, Ahmet, he's like, well, here's a song that I wrote. 
and Ray Charles plays that and it's a big hit. It's like, well, that's not really him then, but because this other dude wrote it, but just the energy here, I really liked. It was something that I hadn't felt during Walk the Line. I was grooving. You get Hit the Road, Jack. You get I've Got a Woman. And uh, one not so good thing from Ray for me is, and I don't know how much of this is me, I couldn't tell the difference between his second and third mistresses. <laughs> Like, he's leaving the second woman to be with the third woman, and I couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, I can see that, because the, they're both women that he meets who are co-performers, basically. Yeah, they, they help on the show, and then, like, the one is giving him difficulty, so it's like, we need another woman, and they bring her in, and then immediately he's with her, too. Yeah, and they're, like, sniping at each other, too, competing, so it's like, they're going back and forth, right? But then it ends with them making Georgia on my mind, the state song of Georgia, when decades earlier he hadn't uh, been able to perform for integrated crowds. And so you get the, you know, your Oscar Beatty feel good, dramatic moment. Uh, but then, uh, like, it actually showed Ray Charles in that moment, too, which was cool. I like when they do that and can actually have the real person there. Yeah. Because uh, he he died, like, right before the movie came out in theaters, right? Yeah, well, one bummer was he he died right before it came out. It was a big thing because he had signed off on the script and had been, like, given pointers to the production team. Who, who knows how involved he actually was, but he was actually going to go see it, and then he died, like, a couple weeks before he was supposed to go see it. But now here we are, Dan... We stand on the precipice of death, and our perspective is enormous, as they say in Beautiful Ride. How do you feel about Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story from 2007? So, I knew I was going to like this movie going into it. The question was going to be how much I was going to like it, and I did like it quite a bit. I was laughing a lot. The sense of humor for me isn't... I think it's more distinctly your sense of humor than my sense of humor, Brian. I was laughing a lot, but probably not quite as much as you. Uh, I did find it very funny. It got almost maybe exhausting with like how intensive a parody it was. Just literally everything that I could think of that's in any of those movies, it goes out of its way to to make ridiculous. But it, it is a a really well made movie. A lot of heart in it. The music. The fact that the music is good for me is always a something that's really going to elevate it. And uh, this absolutely has it. I love John C. Riley so much. Um, he's he's grown on me since we've started this podcast and you've been exposing me to uh, everything that you love about him. Surprising me, if you will, with some John C. Riley, although this one was not a surprise considering he's on the poster and a couple of the runners, the gags didn't quite click for me. The, the smell blind thing, I th think they thought was funnier than was ever funny for me. But other things made me laugh really, really hard, especially I think like the wrong kid died is an example of where they repeated something just the right amount of times and escalated it just the right amount to make it really, really funny. And it's just a really smart movie. Very funny. The last thing that kind of pulled me out a little bit is it's so committed to making John C. Riley a drug abusing asshole in the way that the biopics do that like I he could be doing this totally ridiculous stuff and 
it made it hard for me to like I don't know. I wonder if there's a version of this that's slightly less broad and comic, but it's still a big parody that makes me actually care about the character some because here he's basically just a delivery for jokes. So despite my mixed reflection there, because I realized I hadn't quite gotten in some of my not so good things prior leading up to this, um, I do think this is a very good movie. And it's for me, I kind of was waffling on very good and exceptionally good. And then I, I really found the last half hour to be a little bit slower than the hour before it, even though parts of it still made me laugh pretty hard. So I landed on very good, but I will say that I would like to watch this again. And I'm very open to, to letting this grow on me because even just watching clips again, some lines that were kind of funny all of a sudden seemed even funnier when I was like thinking about them again and watching them again and taking the time to appreciate John C. Riley's delivery of the lines and just all the different people involved. So roundabout way of getting to the rating. And that is to say very good movie. Walk hard. Awesome. Well, I'm glad I finally had an opportunity to slot it in for an episode and share it with you. This is one that the first time I saw it was like a revelation to me. As I said, I don't know if I'd seen John C. Riley in a movie before. I might have seen something with Steve Brule from Tim and Eric and not really even known who that was. But I really like this one, if it's not apparent. And this was a case kind of like 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T from a while ago where I went in intending to be objective. And then just as it went along, moments kept appealing to me and raising my little meter in my head. Uh, this is an 8 out of 8. Tour de good for me. Because it's got so many little moments that always make me laugh. The sequence that elevated it for me from any waffling to a firm 8 was when we got to this Beach Boys scene where he's just putting together this opus that nobody understands. And he says, More didgeridoos! I want 50,000 didgeridoos! <laughs> <laughs> and then he's got this angry confrontation with his bandmates because there's also like revolution number nine type stuff at work here and the bandmates say dewey are you saying you don't need us no more and dewey says not unless you can open your minds and learn to play the fucking theremin <laughs> theremin reference exactly at a big <laughs> poignant breakup of the band but then the the biggest moment for me is when it gets to beautiful ride at the end and manages to be simultaneously touching and yet it's also got dewey ripping 12 sinks off the wall and then also you got this montage that's just revealing how many different scenes they must have shot for this film. Like, I'm sure they got hours and hours of stuff that we just never saw, which makes it really apparent to me that this was an absolute passion project by Kasdan. Like, what else has, has Jake Kasdan actually done? I don't actually know. Let me look it up. Like, there is some stuff, but... I feel like he just had a really clear vision for this one, even if it's derivative of all these other biopics that they're mocking. Qu I quite enjoy this one. Tour de good. All right, I'm looking up Jake Kasdan now. For what it's worth, the smell blind thing is stupid to me too. Okay. That's my biggest down note on the film. I didn't understand it at all when I saw it. I understand it a little more now that I've seen Ray because he had the blindness that sets in. But that still doesn't make it funny to me. Right. 
Oh, he did the J- Jumanji reboots. Okay. I got to watch those. Yeah, yeah. Another reason to watch those. He did that Jason Segel, Cameron Diaz movie that totally flopped sex tape. Oh, and then he did that that comedy Orange County in 2002, which my friends in college like to reference, but I haven't actually seen. Oh, it stars Colin Hanks, Tom Hanks' son. That's awesome. Colin Hanks to me is always going to be the creepy serial killer from season six of Dexter. Oh, (laughs) and that's walk hard. (laughs) Thanks everybody for joining us as always. Dan, what is next on the docket for the goods? So Brian, I'm going to ask you to watch two movies because I am going to do my first ever iteration of a semi recurring feature that you invented called violent ends and the premise of violent ends longtime listeners will recall is that we take two movies with similar setups or similar premises but that diverge tonally in the ending usually one of them ending violently and the other one ending happily and talk through both of them do some compare and contrast imagine what would happen if somehow certain scenarios were flipped and we you've come up with some good ones of these Brian and I think you're good at at identifying these and I will I think give you credit yeah I think I identified this one yeah you gave me the idea for this one I think and it it's stuck in my craw and so I've been kind of cooking on it since then we'll talk a little bit more about my thing with bears because these are bears related but the 2014 nature documentary called bears that is on the disney nature line and then the 2005 werner herzog documentary grizzly man um those are going to be the two movies we're going to discuss it'll be a bear themed violent ends i'm ready disney's bears and herzog's grizzly man and i have seen neither of them so i'm I'm just assuming they're connected enough and and what i kind of know about each of them that it will fit but We'll see. We'll get to talk bears one way or the other. So I'm excited about that, at least. Can't go wrong talking bears. Yeah. So, Brian, I will look forward to talking Disney's bears and Grizzly Man next week with you. And I as well. Thanks for joining me, Dan. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Join us next time here on The Goods. The Goods.